Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Wait a minute, as you grab your seat, grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Matthew chapter 19. When you think about literary tools, there are a lot of tools in your toolbox that you could use, but irony is one of the best, one of the funnest, and there are a few different types. Uh, One irony, one type of irony is what we would call verbal irony. Now, some of you guys are really good at verbal irony, and you don't even know it, okay? How many of you guys would say that you can be a bit sarcastic? (laughs) That is verbal irony. It's, It's saying one thing with your words, but in your meaning, you mean something different. It's kind of like that mom that comes into her son's incredibly messy room and says, wow, you could win an award for cleanliness, son. She said one thing, but meant something different. That's verbal irony. Another type of irony is called dramatic irony. Dramatic irony, it it really creates comedic tension or, or thrilling suspense, depending on what the author's going for. Dramatic irony, it it happens when the audience knows something that the character doesn't know. So one of the movies that just cracks me up, man, I've seen it a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, is Home Alone. Anybody else crack up when they watch Home Alone, man? Still to this day, I love it. And one of the reasons why it's so funny is that they use dramatic irony for comedy. Because think about it, we get to see all of the traps that Kevin McAllister is setting for the criminals, Marv and Harry, and they have no idea that this kid's about to pummel them, right? They have no clue. And it's hilarious when they get hit by the paint pan or the, the, the paint can or the brick or, or step on that nail with the tar on it, all that stuff. Or when it comes to like thrilling suspense, think about that scary movie that has you hiding under the blanket because you know that Michael Myers or Jason is just right around the corner. Yet here's this person just walking through that dark forest (laughs) all by themselves like there is nothing wrong in the world, all right? That is dramatic irony, okay? But the final one is called situational irony. Situational irony is when something occurs that is the opposite of what's expected. And here are just a few examples of situational irony. For instance, did you know... That Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, is the only coach in the history of the University of Kansas, which has a great winning record. He is the only coach in the history of of University of Kansas basketball coaching who has a losing record. The inventor of basketball has a losing record at Kansas. Isn't that ironic? In 2002, a, a tree was planted in a park in L.A. in memory of Beatles guitarist George Harrison. And later that tree died after being infested by, guess what? Beetles. Isn't that ironic? The father of traffic safety, his name was William Eno. He invented the stop sign, the crosswalk, traffic circles. He invented one-way streets. It took an inventor for that. Uh, Taxi stands, but he himself never learned to drive. Isn't that ironic? And as a final example... Can you guess what the most shoplifted book in America is? (laughs) You guessed it. It is the Bible. Isn't that ironic? Well, here in Matthew 19, we have just an excellent example 
of irony. Here we have a man who is kept from his riches. From the riches of the kingdom of God. He's kept from the riches of the kingdom of God precisely because he couldn't let go of his own riches here on earth. Isn't that ironic? His riches kept him from God's riches. So let's stand together this morning to honor the reading of the word of God. Matthew 19, beginning in the 16th verse, and we'll read down through the 30th verse. As you stand, know this church, that every word you read here in the Bible is true. These are not stories in the sense of made-up fiction. These really happen. These are true stories. And here's what it says. It says, And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good must I do to, to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all of those I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you'd be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come and ask that you would open our eyes today to the truth of your word. God, we want to understand it. We want to know it. But then, God, we want to go live it. Your word is meant to be lived and not just heard. So, Father, I pray right now as we all pray together that we will not be hearers only, but would be doers of your word. And so as we talk about the truth that's contained here in this text, God, help us to live it. If there's anybody under the sound of my voice who has not yet repented and trusted Christ, we pray today would be the day that they would see Christ crucified for their sins. And they would turn from those sins and trust in Christ and be saved. Would take up that cross and follow Jesus. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, grab your seat there. Today we're going to continue in the series that we began last week. This series of messages and Bible studies that are focused on the life of the Apostle Peter. 
We're calling it authentic inconsistency. You see, Peter here in this passage is not really the main character, okay? The rich young ruler, the rich young man is actually the main character. So what role does Peter play in this? Peter in this text is acting as the, the, the foil in the story. All right, he's the foil of the story. Of course, this is history, but nevertheless, that's the part that he's playing. He's the foil in the story. He is the one who stands in contrast to that main character. In this instance, highlighting the absolute foolishness of the rich, young ruler. Now, Peter's a lot like you and me, right? You ever have any trouble with consistency, right? You ever do really good in Jesus and for Jesus, and then next time, all you know, you've tripped, fallen, you can't get up, it seems? That's Peter, man. He was up, he was down, he had hills, he had valleys. And last week, he was an example of what not to do. Do not deny Jesus. But this week, Peter and his inconsistency flips back the other way. In this passage, he is the one that we should emulate. He is the one, the example of what to do. And here is what I believe God wants you and me to understand from this morning's text. And here it is. Today's truth is this, church. Leaving everything to follow Jesus is never a net loss. Let me say that again. Leaving everything to follow Jesus is never a net loss. This is something that the rich young ruler, he completely missed it. But Peter grasped it. One went away in grief. The other one eventually came into eternal joy. Our text this morning teaches us four principles that you and I must understand if we're going to grasp today's truth and we're going to rejoice in it. And here's the first principle. It's this, is that there is a cause for following Jesus. We are not used car salesmen here, right? We want you to understand that there is indeed a cause. Here we have a young man who is searching for eternal life. And I pray that somebody here today has come in this church gathering and is seeking and searching for eternal life. And we later find out from Matthew that that he's a rich young man. Of course, Jesus is an omniscience. He knew that. That's why he said to him what he said. But we don't find that out until after the fact here in this text. And then when we look over at Luke's version, uh, we, we, we find not only was he a rich young man, but he was a rich young ruler. He was probably a ruler of the synagogue or in the synagogue, and especially honor position for a young man. And so he was a religious leader of the Jews. He was devout, he, he was honest, he was wealthy, he was prominent, he was influential, he had it all, except the most important thing, eternal Life And so, in his search for eternal life, this young man, he approaches Jesus and asks Jesus in Matthew 19, 16. Look at it with me. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, you need to note this morning, church, that that is a perfect example right here of natural religion. This is natural religion. Natural religion is a worldview or, 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 or a way of seeing things. It's a mindset that is based on good works. What you must do to earn heaven. We got to work, this worldview says, to earn God's favor, to earn eternal life. I call it natural religion because we're born thinking this way, right? It naturally comes out of our mind and out of our hearts as fallen men and women. Guys, that's why every religion in the world except for Christianity, lays out the pathway that you must climb 
to get to God's favor. You must work to earn it. Beloved, please understand that this is not good news. Right? If you have this worldview, if you have this mindset in you, just listen to me. It is not found in Scripture as something that it commends to you. Every time it talks about natural religion and earning your salvation, it actually says, don't do it. You fall short every time. In fact, if you follow natural religion, you will miss eternal life. Because in order to get to heaven, you know what Scripture tells us? If you are going to earn your way to heaven, there is only one thing that you must do. And you know what it is? Be perfect. That's it. Be perfect. Never, ever, ever, ever sin and fall short. And if you'll do that, heaven's yours on your own merits. (laughs) That's the standard that God puts before us, y'all. You see, when we think like that about earning heaven, we, we, we often want to grade ourselves on a sliding scale, though. We don't think about perfection as the standard, right? We, we want to grade ourselves on the curve. We want to say, at least my good outweighs my bad. But that's not how God looks at it. As I've said this many times, God doesn't ask the question, does her good outweigh her bad? Or does his good outweigh his bad? God asks this question. He says, is there bad? Is there any bad whatsoever? And if there is any bad whatsoever, you know what scripture tells us? You will miss heaven. If you are not perfect, you will miss heaven. And in my 39 years on this earth, I've never met a perfect person. Amen? Never have I met a perfect person. And so you have absolutely no hope in yourself. You've already sinned. You've already fallen short. Your only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ. But this rich young man, he comes, he approaches Jesus, he asks him there in verse 16, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus banters with him a bit. Then he tells him, verse 17, what I just told you. Look at Matthew 19, 17. If you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus says, you want eternal life? Then be perfect. But the young man wants to make sure that he's on target. He he wants to make sure that he's ready, okay? And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, which ones, which commandments are you talking about? You want me to keep the commandments? I mean, there are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament for people of God to follow. And so the young man wanted Jesus to narrow those down. And so Jesus threw out a few of him, a, a few to him in, in, in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, you shall not murder. That's a great commandment to live by. You shall not commit adultery. Another great commandment to live by. You shall not steal. Excellent. You shall not bear false witness. Amen. Honor your father and mother. Double amen at this point in my life. <laughs> And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy, as he's hearing this stuff, man, he's like, yes, I've done all that. I've done all that, Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, he hadn't kept those commandments. He, he, he may have kept some of them, but you know what? He, he probably had not kept any of them because it's not just what you do in life, but also what you do in your heart. 
and in your mind. You see, to hate your brother is to commit murder according to Jesus. And to lust after that man or after that woman who is not your spouse is to commit adultery in your heart. And so it's not just what you do, but it's your mind, it's your thoughts, it's your desires that must be perfect as well. But this guy thought he had kept them all. He's thinking, well, if that's it, man, if that's all it takes to have eternal life, then I'm set. But just to be safe. Because all legalists want to be safe. He asked a follow-up question. He said, you see, basically I've completed this checklist, but I want to make sure that I didn't leave anything off of this checklist. So he asked Jesus, look at it. What do I still lack? And Jesus, knowing his heart, he threw out one more thing. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be what, church? Perfect. Remember, that's the standard to enter into heaven on your own merits. If you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. There it is. There's the last thing on this dude's checklist, and eternal life theoretically would be his. Jesus here is essentially saying, young man, give up what you love the most and come follow me. And for this young man, when you think about what you love most, I mean, it may be different, but what this young man loved was money. He loved money. He loved the smell of money. He loved the feel of money, right? It was his riches. He lived for his money. He, he thought about his money. It, it's what gave him his identity and what gave him his hope. Keeping what Jesus has already listed for him here, Jesus is essentially asking the young man to keep the Ten Commandments, right? He's already listed some of the other Ten Commandments there, but he, he, he left this one off. And so he comes back to it as he says, go give your possessions to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. He is essentially calling this young man to follow the first commandment, which is you shall have no other God but me. And Jesus had already made it clear in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other one, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other one. No one can serve God and money. That goes for anything, not just money, right? Anything. You cannot have two masters of your life. And so... When you come to Jesus, you got to get rid of one. He, you, can't keep, you can't keep that master and add another master. You have to give something up. There is indeed a loss. In this instance, it was his riches. But when you boil it down, what Jesus was asking him to do was to throw out his other God. Throw out this other God that he lived for, that he, he found his identity in, that he had placed his hope in because it was standing between him and the true God who gives eternal life. If you've come in here this morning and Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, what is that thing 
that you're holding on to that's keeping you from following Jesus? What other God is ruling your life? Could it be as simple as pride? Right? You don't want to look weak. You don't want to look like you need something outside of yourself. You were taught self-reliance and you're struggling to give that up. Could it be fear? I don't know what you're afraid of. But it could be simply that you're afraid to stand and proclaim Christ as your Savior because you're not sure what people will think, right? You, you have some sort of social anxiety that's keeping you from publicly calling on Christ. Could it be a relationship? You know, I, I wonder if someone in your family thinks differently than Christ would think and you're afraid to upset that relationship. You're afraid that if you come to Christ, that they'll be disappointed. They may even disown you, right? That happens all over the world. People who come to Christ and their family disowns them. In fact, some families put a hit out on that person, that they may be killed and murdered. Might it cause a problem between you and your spouse, or you and your girlfriend, or your boyfriend? I have a friend who's a pastor now, and he and his wife, when they married... Years ago, I guess it was in the 80s, maybe it was the 90s. They were both lost. Neither one of them were Christians. But somewhere along the way in their marriage, the Lord saved him. The Lord saved him. And she was okay with that. She was okay with that because, I mean, you know, he could go do his thing and she would do her thing. But then a few years after that, the Lord didn't just save him, but he called him into ministry. And you know what she said to him? She said... I will not be a pastor's wife. And she divorced him because of that. We never know, right? Maybe that fear is in the back of your mind. Could it be the desire to not give up some worldly pleasure that you know that God is against? Could it be that you've taken on an identity? And this is big today, y'all. People identify with all of these different things, these different labels, and maybe the identity that you have taken on, God is against that. And you feel like if you give that up, you are giving up your identity. You would lose who you are, what makes you, you. Whatever it is this morning, you have to understand that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is indeed a loss. There is. You have to give some things up. Just like Jesus called this rich, young man to do. But second, our text teaches this, and it's this principle. Number two is that your idols will influence you to see that the cost is too high. As you look at the cost, your idols will begin to scream at you. And that's exactly what happened here. The idol of money that had taken root in this young man's heart, it began to cry out to him, Dude, don't do it! You can't live without me. Life won't be fun without me. People will ignore you without me. And that's exactly what our idols do. That's exactly what they do. When we are brought to that moment of decision, your flesh will war against you when you try to get rid of that idol because you are a slave to that idol, to that sin. And the devil will war against you when you're trying to get rid of that idol because he doesn't want to lose his grasp on you. And so they will cry out, they will cry out, that idol will cry out, it's too much to ask for, the cost is too high. 
And sadly, the rich young man here gave in to the cries of his idol. Because we read in verse 22 here, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. This is, in essence, a power encounter in this man's heart between God and riches. And the riches won in his heart this time. You better believe this morning, if you're not in Christ, you will experience this very same thing when you are brought, if you're ever brought, and I pray that you are, if you're ever brought by the Holy Spirit to a moment of decision for Christ. For those of you who are Christians already, don't you remember that, that moment? Maybe it happened a lot of times, right? But you experienced that when that, that battle, that tug, when the Holy Spirit is saying, come to Christ, and your flesh is saying, no. <laughs> that idol saying, don't do it. I remember it so vividly in my own life, especially the first time that I ever felt the Holy Spirit calling me to salvation. I was at a church camp. And if you've heard my testimony before, you've heard this story. Rough River Lake, All Saints Camp. It was probably 1990. I was going into the fifth grade. And there at this evening worship service, there on the banks of the Rough River Lake, the gospel was preached, and they gave an invitation, and the Holy Spirit was screaming at me, give your life to Jesus, Ben. And you know what my flesh was doing? Digging in nails. No way, man. I was holding on to that little wooden bench because it didn't have... A back on the seats, right? I couldn't hold on to the back of the pew. I was holding on like this, and I felt the knot in my throat getting bigger and bigger and bigger, like it was, my neck was just going to explode as that frog got bigger and bigger. There was this battle going inside of me because I didn't know what people would think about Ben Simpson if he came to Christ. And I, like that rich young ruler, walked away that day and maybe your story is similar to that you walked away in moments in your life when the Holy Spirit was calling you let me say if he's calling you today don't walk away September 8th 2019 is the day to say yes to Jesus your idol is going to do everything in its power to make you think that the cost is too high, but it's not. Praise God that although that day in my heart and in my mind the cost was too high, God didn't give up on me. He continued to pursue me. And even though that battle in one essence was lost there, seven years later, God won the war. <laughs> and I surrendered my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. But if you're here and the Holy Spirit's calling you, you better believe there's going to be a battle. There's going to be a fight. And that tug on your heart toward Christ is the Holy Spirit. And that tug backward away from Christ is sin, flesh, and the devil. They will try to convince you every time that the cost is too high. But beloved, I declare to you this morning, in the name of Jesus, that's a lie, amen? amen? 
That's a lie straight from the devil, which brings me to my third principle that you got to see in the text this morning, and it's this. Following Jesus brings limitless reward, right? We said a moment ago that the irony of this story is that this man's riches kept him from the riches of the kingdom. How ironic. But here we see, as Jesus keeps talking, that in Jesus Christ, this guy had piddly riches compared to the limitless riches that are in Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples, they they begin to process what just happened with this rich young man. And this rich young man, he was unwilling to leave everything and follow Jesus. He saw it as a net loss. He saw the loss and he saw there may be benefit to it, but the loss is greater than the reward. But Peter being the old one, or not the old one, but the bold one, he, he looked and, and looked around at his fellow disciples. And he remembered that once, like that rich young ruler, they had been invited to follow Jesus as well. They had been invited to leave something behind to go follow Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they had left fishing businesses. James and John in particular had left their daddy. They were partners in his fishing business. Maybe they weren't rich, but they were doing what they loved to do. They were doing what they had been taught to do. It was the family business. There was pride in that. Matthew, he left a very lucrative job as a tax collector. Simon, he he had left politics, if you want to call it that. The other disciples, we're not sure of what exactly they left, what they were doing before they followed Jesus, but suffice it to say that they all left something, didn't they? They left it behind, including families and neighbors and friends and houses and lands. And Peter, again, who was always the bold one, he, 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 he asked for the group in Matthew 19, 27. He says this to Jesus. See, or behold, or look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, some commentators, man, when they read this, they they try to read something negative into Peter's question here. That he's selfishly asking, he's selfishly wondering what he can get out of this Jesus deal. But that's not how we should read this, okay? We shouldn't read it as Peter doing something bad here or asking a selfish question. How do I know that? Because Jesus didn't rebuke his question, right? He didn't rebuke his question. Remember, in this historic narrative here, Peter is the positive foil to the rich young ruler, right? Who's our negative example, our our, our negative example. The rich young ruler is the negative example, Peter is the positive example here, right? While the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus when Jesus asked him to leave everything behind, to give up everything, Peter gladly gave it all up and followed Jesus. And so Peter says, we've loved everything and followed you, Jesus. What then will we get? And look here at Jesus' reply. Matthew 28 and 29, Matthew 19, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus didn't rebuke that question. He didn't shy away from that question. He leaned in to that question and he gave a full answer, right? He said, guys, you're asking what you're going to get? You're going to get authority in the kingdom. You're going to get a hundredfold. You left houses and family and lands and all that stuff. You're going to get a hundred times more back. And on top of all that, you're going to receive eternal life. The very thing the rich young ruler had been looking for. Jesus basically said, Peter, brother, you're going to get a big reward. You're going to get a great reward. And I say to you this morning, church, that in Jesus Christ, when you think about that loss in Christ, it is not, never, ever is it a net loss. It is always a net gain. Not barely a net gain, but infinitely a net gain. Your reward will be limitless. For those of you who are outside of Christ this morning, you've been doing that cost-benefit analysis, right? Is it worth it to give this up, whatever this is that's between you and God at this moment? Is it worth it to give this up to follow Jesus and your idol is screaming at you, it's not worth it! (laughs) But Jesus here is declaring to you, yes, yes, it's worth it. Every bit of it, it's more than worth it. And not only is it all that a holy heart could ever want, it's experienced forevermore with eternal life. Nothing that you're holding on to this morning compares to that. I don't care what it is. You could walk up here and I don't know how many people are here today, but every one of us could come up with something different. Even the greatest thing on this earth that you could imagine. And it does not compare. Every time, Jesus is a net gain for whatever it is you have to leave behind. For those of us who are in Christ, but you're being tempted to doubt it right now. You're, you're, you're beginning to doubt, you're tempted to doubt if it was really worth it. Because you look around and you see people who aren't in the faith, who seem to be getting ahead. They seem to be doing really well. Don't let that lure you back into the world. Don't return to vomit. Don't return to dung. Don't return to garbage. Whatever it is that's tempting you, that's what it is compared to Christ. It's garbage, dung, and vomit. Cling to Christ because your reward is great. Follow Christ. Don't turn to the left or the right, and don't turn and go back. Following Jesus brings limitless reward. Finally this morning, I don't want you to miss this because we see it here in the text, a fourth principle and it's this. The fourth principle is this, that God's grace makes it possible to see Jesus as gain. 
Jesus basically says, listen, y'all, it's tough for rich people to make it into heaven because their idol of money is often too strong for them to turn away from it. He says it this way there in verse 24. He says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you can just see the imagery there, right? He's exaggerating here. He's using language there, right? You can just picture a needle, right? I can't even get a piece of thread through an eye of a needle, <laughs> right? That is hard, okay? Now imagine trying to get a, a, a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible, isn't it? It is impossible. And that astonished the disciples. They said, what? Wait a minute, Jesus. Because in their minds, you see, they equated material blessing with God's favor. I mean, if, in their mind, they, they, they were like the early health and wealth prosperity preachers in one sense, right? Health and wealth were signs of God's favor. They were signs of God's holiness. They were signs that God was rewarding somebody, at least in their mind. So if you want to know who's godly in their minds, they would say, look around at who's wealthy. And so when Jesus says that it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven, they were dumbfounded. Seriously? Who then can be saved? You may have somebody on your mind right now who is so enslaved to sin that you say they are like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. There is no way that they will ever come to God because it's too hard. It's too difficult. The cost is too high. But I want you to focus in on Jesus' answer here. Matthew 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and he said this, With man, this is what, church? Impossible. But with God, all things are what, church? Possible. You know what that means? That means that by the power of God, he and she who are enslaved to sin, and it looks like they're the camel trying to get through the eye of the needle, they can never do it on their own, but by God's grace, they can be set free and saved. And I'm looking around the room, and I see camels who pass through eyes of needles. Because of God's grace. I am a camel who passed through the eye of a needle by God's grace. You and I, we may be tempted to just sit in judgment on this rich young ruler man because he rejected this offer. And let me say emphatically that it was foolish to reject Jesus' offer. But don't just sit there and say, what a moron. Let Jesus' words here humble you. Let Jesus' words here humble you. Your salvation, just like this man's salvation, was impossible in and of yourself. But with God, all things are possible. Let me say it this way. If it was not for the grace of God in your life, you would still be clinging to that idol. 
Ben Simpson would still be clinging to that idol. You'd be saying, the cost is too high, forget it. But by God's grace, God opened your eyes. It's not that you were smarter or wiser or more tender. It's because God has been gracious to you. Let it humble you. Let it make your heart sing praise to God. Never forget what God tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Guys, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it points us to God's grace, His great grace that Ben could never accomplish on his own. It's all by the grace of God. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that here it is, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, listen to this again, and because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved, God's grace makes it possible to see Jesus as gain. And right now I'm praying that God is moving across this worship center. And for the one who is not yet in Christ, today's truth, I pray, resonates with your heart. Leaving everything to follow Jesus is never a net loss. It is always an infinite gain. So would you come to Jesus today and be saved? Here's my final prayer. My final prayer is this. May you see the greater reward and receive every bit of it in Jesus Christ. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus 
longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.